This is The Guardian. I'm Grace Dent, and this is Comfort Eating from The Guardian. A podcast where we pay homage to the lesser celebrated foods in life. Because even as a restaurant critic, I believe the food that matters most is often that snack you cobble together when you're curled upon the sofa. Each week, I ask my guest to lift the lid on what comfort foods have seen them through their lives. Because you can tell a lot about a person from what they eat behind closed doors. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, people. We are back. Season three is upon us, and I am delighted to be welcoming you into my kitchen once again. Thank you for getting in touch with all your kind words about the show. It means so much. I am just putting a couple of crumpets into the toaster, and I'm going to have them slathered thickly with Morecambe Bay shrimp. That is going to be my sustenance to meet my first guest today. I have a slight problem. I'm going to admit, I normally like to find common ground with whoever's coming over. But this is a man known for knowing the most about cars. I've got to say that I have failed my driving test seven times. I am the holder of only a provisional license. I'm hoping this man will let me off. I'm talking about James May. Now, obviously, you know James. He's one third of the trio that brought fast cars and epic road trips to our Sunday nights. First on BBC's Top Gear, where they became the most watched factual show in the world. And now on Amazon Prime's The Grand Tour. He's nicknamed Captain Slow because of his relatively sensible driving style. And I'm excited to find out what James is like off screen. Are we talking life in the fast lane or is it more of a Sunday drive? We'll find out after my crumpets. Mm. James May. Hello. Welcome Thank to you. Comfort Eating. You <laughs> are the first person that's come on Comfort Eating that my partner, Charlie, is genuinely gutted to have not met. Because I think... That have you not you, had a very good guest list? Though, I've, right? had, I've had incredible guests, but I think that you're somebody... I think that when he's on his downtime, that's when I hear him being far happier than when he's actually with me, is when he's watching you. Oh, dear. Do you know what I mean? Do you get no, this a lot? Not, no, well... You must do. I had a terrible moment the other day. This is the first time it's happened to me. Um, we have been doing this quite a long time, but quite often... People would come up and ask for a selfie, you know, the normal yeah. sort of thing. And they would often say, oh, but my boyfriend really likes you or my dad really likes you. And then I think, oh, that's a bit disappointing. Um, <laughs> and then this girl came up to me the other day and she was probably in her early 20s, yeah. very bubbly and lovely. She came up and she said, oh, oh do you, could you sign something for me? I said, yes, of course I can. And she said, only my grandma really likes you. <laughs> that was the first grandma I had. <laughs> 
Ah. I was utterly crushed. <laughs> it, I, but you, we're old now. You, yeah. you, you're not. You're not old. I tell you what, I am surprised by how long your hair is. Yes, it grows all by itself. <laughs> I, I just haven't had it cut. It's not a style. <laughs> you look like one of the Grateful Dead. Well, that's all right. I don't mind looking like one of the Grateful yeah, Dead. Yeah, do. Somebody they... keep people keep saying things. Oh, you're cultivating a Billy Connolly look, and I think <laughs> Billy Connolly must be really unhappy about that. This is where I get to find out what people really eat behind closed doors. I'm excited to discover your ultimate comfort food. Go on, unveil it's the snack. Here. I would love to. Well, I'm not actually going to unveil it. I'm going to hand it to you because it's wrapped in tinfoil. I like the look of this. Um, there it is. Does the tinfoil add to this? Is it? No, do, no. It's, no. That's, it's wrapped up. Oh, it's gift. very warm. It's but like it also a, keeps it warm. It's here, like a lovely Christmas day kind of present. Yes. Yes. It's warm. Shall I open mine first? Yes, please. I've starved myself today, so please don't hang about. I'm desperate for this. You starved yourself? Yeah. <gasps> oh, so we have a ve- what I have in front of me is white bread, unashamed mm-hmm. white bread. It's quite oily. Mm hmm. Still got some indentations it's, in it from the fingers. Yeah. It smells well. <laughs> so there is. Three fish fingers in this sandwich. Three? Hang on, is there? No, no, there should be five. There's five. I'm yeah, sorry, sorry, I'm sorry. My maths is terrible. There's two on each side. It's hardly maths. There's I mean, two. Half a packet. There's two on each side, and then you've laid one along the top. That is the correct government-approved arrangement of fish fingers in a fish finger sandwich, which is why you can't make it with um, sort of left-wing artisanal bread. It has to be very square, industrial bread is there anything else special in this salad cream oh my god do you like salad cream i love oh good a lot of people don't a lot of people are sniffy about it because they think i will look unsophisticated if i admit to liking salad cream it's a bit like saying you like frosties people say i love crunchy nut cornflakes they're the sort of middle class version (laughs) the um salad cream is the king of is it a condiment i don't know do you Uh, know james have you bitten you've bitten it Yes, and James, I don't want to feel emotional. I don't want to show <laughs> this raw is. emotion while I'm being recorded. And yet, I feel like nobody's ever understood that fish fingers go with salad cream. That's oh, they definitely what, That's do. what they go with. I mean, if you're being really sophisticated, as I would have done when I was a youth, you would make tartar sauce or even sauce tartare by mixing salad cream with sandwich spread in a small cup and stirring it up with a spoon. I love what and you you've can't done tell here. the difference. I love what you've done here. Good. I'm a, ma- I'm a massive fan of the fact that. Do you mind if I bite into mine? Please, I've been please. Thinking about it. Please but... eat. If we opened a restaurant, <laughs> this is all we'd serve. Mm. People would come. <laughs> I was very surprised to hear that when you were a youth, you were a choir boy. Why? I don't know. I just have no. I've never heard this about you. Am I not angelic? You're not. You're no. <laughs> not the most angelic of people. Well, I'll tell you the interesting thing about being a choir boy. So we're talking about the early seventies here when I was a boy, um, and attitudes were not as uh, how can we put it as flexible or yeah. as liberal as they are now regarding yes. certain topics that are quite hot at the moment. Yes. So actually, being a choir boy. 
was to enter an arena that made you whole as a man because you were twelve. You were a twelve-year-old boy. Yeah. Difficult time in your life. Yeah. And you had to wear a dress, which wouldn't be such an issue now, and it shouldn't be. Did but you it quite was like them. To be honest, I didn't really think about it because that's mm. just what you did, and it was free. They gave you a dress to wear. You couldn't take it home, <laughs> and we used to have fights as well. Were you a good singer? Yeah, well, I was good enough. Good and good. The pool was not big for a little <laughs> village parish church. Yeah. As choir boys, we were a bunch of little shits, really. I mean, awful people. Mm. Fighting, urinating on gravestones, stealing things, you know, singing um, at people's weddings for 50 pence <laughs> without a moment's thought for the sanctity of marriage or anything <laughs> like that. It was 50 pence and some aniseed balls. When you were little, mm-hmm. family life... How was that? Was that um, happy? Happy, happy yeah. conventional, lower middle class, I suppose. Were you aware that of that at the time? No. Yeah. I wasn't aware of anything until the age of about 50. <laughs> <laughs> Is that when you grew up? I think, yeah, if indeed I did even then. Um, no, I didn't really know. I, well, I think I was aware that our, our family life was sort of safe and comfortable. We weren't yeah. struggling to eat or keep ourselves warm or anything like that. What were you eating? We had a car. Oh, um, well, I suppose we probably had a fairly typical 1970s. I'm talking about being a child here, not a mm. teenager or yeah. anything. 1970s industrial, largely in the north diet uh, with some exotics like macaroni cheese or a Monday night curry made with leftovers with curry i'm saying curry in inverted commas which is quite difficult to do but you know yeah. the sort of yeah. thing so a curry where it was what like a vesta curry or a curry where your dad would just get random things and then put some kind of curry powder onto mm. it that was um that was very big in the 70s it was usually my mum that made the curry my dad used to do the roast because that would allow him to use the carving knife which, of course, is a manly duty. It would allow him to say, <laughs> I'll carve the bird or something like that. I love to carve the bird. I thought maybe I inherited it directly from my father, but there's a small ritual about yeah. honing the knife and yeah. holding it up to the light and then asking everybody to stand clear. Yes. <laughs> and it's ritualistic. Mm. Curry, yes. Yeah. So the curry was made with... I don't. I've often asked my mother since, I've said, would you show me how you made those curries yeah. in the 70s? Yeah. But she never has done, and I think she wants to put it behind her. But they were made with curry powder, and we're quite used these days to the idea of having a whole range of spices in the yes. house. And we know we know the different types of basic curry powder, like madras and so on. But they just used to be one that was in a, I think it was in a sort of a bluey-green pot, and it just said curry just powder curry. on it. <laughs> and that was used with some onions and, I presume, some water. Yes. And it was brown. It yeah. was very brown and shiny. Yeah. And it had some sultanas in it, of course. And it had a sliced up boiled egg on the top. And bits of leftover chicken and then served on top of plain boiled rice. And it was... Glamorous. Think, glamorous <laughs> and so delicious. It would put yeah. me into a sort of coma yeah. for a few hours. Who was there? It was your mum, your dad and... I've got, a, I've got a slightly younger brother, a slightly older sister and, yeah. and a sister quite a bit younger, about 10 years younger. So you're all sitting around together. You said macaroni cheese mm. out of a tin? Good God, no. We're not heathens. No, but it was the basic... Who makes the... I don't even know if they still do the macaroni in the blue box. Oh, and you put the box into the packet 
And then you add milk and water and then stir, 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 stir. No, 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 no. This no. was raw macaroni. Okay. The little, it's actually got a name, small macaroni. Macaroni oini, probably, being yeah. Italian. And you just made that up. I did. <laughs> but that would be obviously boiled for too long, I imagine. We didn't understand the idea of al dente. No. And then the cheese sauce would be made with cheddar cheese because there were only two types of cheese in 1973. There was cheddar cheese and <laughs> Cheshire cheese, maybe yeah. Red Leicester, if you were yeah. lucky. Yeah. Um, so a cheesy sauce was made. And then, and I can't explain this, we'd have that, and it was fabulous, obviously, because it was really mm. cheesy. We'd have mm. that with a sausage. Oh, hang on. Because that's really like? Italian. <laughs> <laughs> Just like they do in Sicily. Yeah, exactly. What a pork sausage on top yeah, of like the a, macaroni. Like a walls banger, I suppose. You moved around a bit as a youngster. You were mm -hmm. born in Bristol. Mm -hmm. You spent your early years in Newport. The majority of your youth in Rotherham. Yes. What did you and your friends spend your days doing? Well, when we weren't going to school, mm. which we did reasonably diligently, we, we didn't wag off a lot or anything like that, or I didn't anyway. The sort of things we do, um, do you know what? We used to do a huge amount of cycling around and walking around as well. We used to... Yeah. And I suppose if people saw us, they'd have probably thought we were up to no good. Mm. Um, and it, it was probably called street raking by our teachers and our elders street and better. Street raking? Yeah, which is sort of, you know, youths, sort of slightly suspicious looking youths wandering around in gangs. But we weren't suspicious. We used to set off. So say if it started at, at my end of town, I set off with my mate Cookie or my mate Mesh. And we'd walk, we'd walk for bloody miles, but we'd pick up other mates on the way. You know, we'd go Cookie and call and for Mash. them. Mesh. So you set off on this kind of walking tour, picking other people up. Is there a point to the walking tour, though? Well, that we, there used to be a destination, like on my bike rides, but it would be a sweet shop or the off-licence, or if it was a summer evening, maybe the park. We didn't really achieve anything. I don't know. We never really like... had any money, so we couldn't do anything very, very glamorous. But it does feel like you're still quite food-focused. Were you setting off? Did you buy a snack along the way or yeah, sweets? Yeah, sweets. Or... sweets. Sweets mainly and bottles of ginger beer. And then when we got a bit older, we tried, tried it on at pubs and managed to get a pint of lager or They're the magical like times, that. though. Yeah, when you can't quite reach the bar, but you still get away with, yeah. You get to go and stand in a beer garden. So exciting. And you think you're going to get arrested and put in prison yeah. for drinking beer when you're only 15. But of course you're not. You're just going to be told to piss off. You know? <laughs> <laughs> what were you like at school? Horrible. Were you? Yeah. Well, were you the kind of person that did you get kicked out of classes and made to stand outside in the corridor? Not very often, but no, it wasn't as obvious that as that. Mm. I think I was, I was daydreaming, but also belligerent, incredibly lazy, and slightly subversive. Oh. As were my mates, you know, we were just yes. It was sort of passive resistance, possibly subliminally disruptive yeah but we didn't smash things up or start fights we just didn't cooperate your early days as a choir boy clearly made their mark you went on to study music at lancaster university mm. i've heard that you used these musical skills to make ends meet oh you're referring to when i was a minstrel I uh, yes that didn't last very long, like most things I've done. But uh, 
Well, to be honest, there are two there are two sides to this, or two parts to it, should I say. There there was my work at a restoration banqueting hall. And this sort of thing was all the rage. I'm, again, I'm talking about them. We're now in the mid to late seventies. So there was so, a craze for you know, people who had big country houses and presumably couldn't make ends meet. They yeah. would rent them out and parties, stag parties, hen parties or office parties would go there and they would sort of dress up a bit and you'd pretend it was the restoration of King Charles and eat bowls of gruel and sing <laughs> sing sort of bawdy old songs, take snuff, get pissed, fall over. And I worked at one of those as... Couldn't really call that a minstrel because it's too late in history. But I worked as a musician and just basically pranced around in a big curly wig looking like a cross between Sir Isaac Newton and a dog. But I used to get paid really well for this because back then people had Saturday jobs and you'd work all day in a shop and and earn £3.50 or whatever. But I could work because it was all the people who worked there were in equity. It was considered an acting job. Yeah. And I'd get, for a, for a Saturday evening, I'd get paid something like £18. <gasps> so I was perfectly happy to dress up as King Charles II or a dog. Did you have pointy shoes with bells? No, that that came a bit later. So I did this successfully for a while. And then a good mate of mine, his father ran a catering company, a very successful one. And it, it did lots of special events catering. And he was approached by a family whose um, son was getting married. And they said, we'd like a, an Elizabethan-style reception in a big stripy tent. And he said, he said, yes, I think we can do that without thinking for a moment. Actually, no, we can't do that. But anyway, he agreed to it. And then he came to me and he said, do you think you could be a minstrel? I can get you the outfit. So that was... That was I, it a velour? Or like a velour no, and hose? No, to be honest, what he actually got me was more of a jester's outfit, <laughs> but it was too late <laughs> by then. And because I was diligent and a bit nerdy and frankly stupid, I made the effort to learn genuine Elizabethan lute songs by <gasps> Thomas Campion and John Dowland. And I thought, this is going to knock him over. This is just amazing. Fine knacks for ladies, cheap choice, fair and true. Did Dear, if you expect to, that, no, of course they bloody what didn't. Did I turned up. Hear? I turned up. It was a it was a young farmer's wedding, so they were all you know absolutely lashed, copulating on the tables and all that sort of thing. And I was made, you know, I'd start <laughs> playing fine knacks for ladies or fair if you expect admiring, and people would go, "Do you know any ABBA?" <laughs> You have said that when you were younger, you had, and I quote, a catastrophic lack of ambition. Mm. So you moved to London after uni. Yeah. Did you ever have a career in mind around that point? Did you? I mean, I wasn't going to be a musician because I didn't feel that in my bones, but then I didn't feel anything else either. Mm. So I was still just dreaming a bit at that point. And I... I also think, I don't know, maybe this is product of my upbringing or where I grew up or something, but I, I sort of felt there were some things I wasn't allowed to do. I would never have thought I was allowed to work in TV, for example. That was for other people. I didn't have the wherewithal to realise that I shouldn't do stuffy jobs that I knew in my heart I hated. I should have just gone and worked in pubs and nightclubs and mm. things like that and met more people and had a more youthful experience. But did you want to be on TV? No, I never thought about it. You didn't watch TV? I never TV. thought about anything. 
Grace, this is, this is like, interesting. <laughs> this is it. You didn't. It's like I'm sure you, everybody dreams about being on TV or being a footballer or a rock star or an astronaut. I'm sure I had those same dreams, but I didn't think it was actually worth pursuing in a constructive way. But you didn't. I mean, were you worried about your lack of ambition? Well, I didn't know that I had a lack of ambition. <laughs> I love this, but I mean, in a good way. You were clearly anxiety-free. You weren't an anxious person who was, you know, running themselves ragged, wondering that they should, you know, what they should no, do I, with their lives. I didn't know. I didn't have that. I didn't have angst. No. No. What jobs did you do oh, at that time? I worked in a jewellery shop. I did do some temp jobs through an agency. Things like filing and um, organising things, you know, fairly mundane stuff. I worked in the records department of a hospital for a bit. I worked for a car dealership. I worked in the civil service. I was fired from most of these things. I was going to say, there's a lot of jobs here. <laughs> yeah, there were a lot of jobs because none of them lasted very long. So I applied for a job as a sub-editor on the Engineer magazine, even though I didn't really know what I was doing. And you were a sub-editor, but sub-editor's a proper job. I mean, sub-editor... Yes, it is. It's it a is. Proper... It's an important job. It's a proper job which requires an eye for detail. Yeah, and you have to remember I'm someone who doesn't spell very well, but I didn't reveal that. I didn't get a reply to my job application, and I rang up and nagged them a few times. And eventually, um, a woman answered the phone, and she said, she said, yes, John John Pullin was the editor. A great man, as it turns out, and one of my favourites. She said, oh, John would like you to come in for an interview. And he sat down and had a chat with me and he thought I was an okay sort of bloke. I mean, he was mistaken, obviously. But so he thought, well, I'll give James the job. Then I won't have to interview anybody else. So you go to work in magazines. But mm. this must have been incredibly different from everything you'd done up until then. It was incredibly hard. It used to keep me awake at night because I yeah. couldn't do it. I had yeah. no idea what I was doing. So while I was working freelance and helping launch these new magazines and things, I had a go at writing a few yeah. columns. As it, I didn't know they were columns because I didn't know what I was doing. But And I sent them off to Gavin Green. He's the other hero in my life, yeah. uh, in my work life, who was the editor of Car Magazine and also Car Week, which is a sort of weekly version that they had. So he was sort of editor-in-chief. And I went away somewhere and I came back and there was a letter from Gavin Green. I'd gone to see him. Now, I came back and there was a letter saying, oh, you know, lovely to meet you, but I don't really think we've got anything that um, could employ you full time. But there was also a message on my answer machine. It was an old you know, one. It still had a tape in it. That's how long ago it was. And it was Gavin Green saying, oh, ignore my letter, mate. Come down and see me for a pint. He's Australian. So oh. I went down the road. He lived about two miles away. I went down the road and met him in the pub. And he said, would you like a column on Car Magazine? Which was like one of the most coveted jobs in motoring journalism. And he said, you can think about it for a bit. And I said, no, no, I've already thought about it. And I'll... I'll give it a go. And I'd already written three columns, which is what I'd sent in. So for three months, it was a monthly magazine, I already had the columns. Then it got to month four, and I had to come up with a new one. And it took me over a week to write my fourth column. And you're a bachelor during this point. You are, so you're doing all off. these jobs. I mean, you're, you're doing these jobs that you're fired I got fired, fired by from. quite a lot of girlfriends as well. <laughs> and then you, are, you have a car magazine, so therefore you must... Obviously, have access to lots of lovely cars. Yeah, but you are a bachelor. Girls aren't impressed by cars. What are you eating around this point, though? You've got your bachelor flat, I'm guessing, and you've got access to beautiful cars. Are you are you driving to the most glamorous restaurants in London? No, don't be daft. Showing women. I still didn't have any money. It was probably three quarters bachelorhood with 
bursts of non-bachelorhood before I got fired again. And I, 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 you know what? I struggle when I think back, what did I eat between yeah. the ages of, well, when I left home, when I left home properly to go to university mm. until about 10 years ago. The only thing I can actually remember making with my mates was a grilled pork chop with mashed potatoes and peas. I, mean, I would have had a go at cheesy pasta. We would have done things on toast and we would have made, we'd have, we'd have attempted a fry up and we did do a roast chicken once, disastrously. But the only sort of day-to-day supper I can remember was pork chop with mashed potato and peas. Maybe we had that every day. Finding your perfect home was hard. But thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. In the early days of your TV career, you met your partner, Sarah. Yes. Now, um, knowing about how you felt about food and your attitude to cooking, an important woman then comes into the mix. How did you woo her in the kitchen? <laughs> or did she woo you? Well, she cooked for me before I ever cooked for her. But I'm going to, I'm going to qualify that by saying I'm using the word cooked very generously. So we met, so it's 20 years ago now, Mm. Um, actually in Cyprus at a wedding for a mutual friend but we didn't know each other Yeah, um, we were both there on our own for various reasons of mm. being fired in my case but anyway we'll brush over that when we got back to London uh, we saw each other a few times then she said do you want to come round to my flat I'll make you supper and this is an argument we're still having to this day so I went round. She had a, an ex-council flat that she'd sort of started to restore, but she'd slightly run out of time and money because she was writing for the evening standard about mm. dance and things. So she was quite busy and she was she was very into it and didn't really care, I think, that a flat was incomplete. But she didn't have a proper cooker. She had one of those combi, dual-lit, grill, microwave, <laughs> eviscerator or whatever they're called, things. <laughs> Um, she had quite a nice little table that her grandpa had given her and some little chairs and things. It was all, all quite nice, very clean, you know. And I went round and I said, um, what are we having? You know, and she said, soup. And I said, oh, great, then what? But that was it. <laughs> and I've always maintained There's that... There's no other courses. No, soup is not... <laughs> soup is a snack or a starter, but it's not... It's not supper. Oh, what did she say? Well, she was a bit cross with me because that seemed ungrateful, which I'm... Yeah, it probably was. That's... But we still debate it. Would you like some soup? Yes, as long <laughs> as I can have something else after. <laughs> she had made it, in fairness. It wasn't from a can. Right, I need some it was more detail. Sort of what kind of soup? It's vegetable soup. It's a vegetable had soup. Had she blended it with uh, a blender? No, not completely. So it still oh, had, it had bits in it. Oh, Sarah. What, you don't like bits? <laughs> No, it's just that it's. This is more sounds like more like a stew. Was there bread served with it? 
I think there was some bread. Was yes. it just bread out of a packet, like a loaf? No, I think it was quite a quite a sort of designery, crusty loaf that had been sawn up God, with a bread knife. I'm so on the fence as to whether this is a meal or not. It's not. <laughs> it's soup. Everything that you've told me so far makes me really surprised that you then jumped into telly because jumping into telly is really hard. I think I tripped and fell into it. I mean, the only reason I ended up doing it, and it's also true of my colleagues, is because we were enthusiastic about the subject and by some strange alignment of the stars, the three of us were eventually brought together. Now, it didn't start like that. I, I was offered a job on Driven, the Channel 4 series, back in 1999 because the man who'd been asked to produce it, it was a new series, he read my column in Car and thought it was quite interesting. So he said, will you come in and do a screen test? So I did, and they quite liked me, and I got the job. But after one season, they quietly got rid of me because they didn't like the three of us. We had, weirdly, three white middle... Well, not middle-aged, we were still young then, but three white blokes... Mm and they thought it should probably have a woman on it. And they were sort of probably right, to be honest. Were you devastated? A little bit. Mm. I don't think, I, I probably didn't have the energy to be completely devastated. I was disappointed, mm. as my mother would say. It so happened after that, that I did a bit of freelance work, but then I got a, um, a phone call from the old Top Gear, when it was made at Pebble Mill, from the producer of that, who I think I'd met once or twice on a couple of car-type trips. And he said, do you want to come and do something on top gear instead and I thought oh yeah that'll show him so I went and did that for one season and he was replaced by some other people who didn't like me so I was fired from I was actually fired from top gear (laughs) I was actually a bit depressed about that because I found the whole experience a little bit I mean you've got to be very careful with the desire to work in tv it's it's something that finds you rather than the other way around and Mm. and it can be especially if you if you've had no aspiration towards it or no no sort of preparation it, it it can wear you down a bit it's it's quite it's quite sort of ruthless and it's it's not it's not necessarily particularly kind in the same way also i don't think journalism is particularly kind it's not the doors to heaven flinging open no it really isn't when you went and you got the job full time were you taking that kind of still the remnants of that catastrophic lack of ambition were you still taking that with you and how did that fit in when you got there and you were put with you know Jeremy Clarkson he always feels to me like someone who kind of knows where he's going and it's straight ahead I think he possibly did well he certainly did more than I did Mm. but at the same time it would be unfair to to try and say that Jeremy was someone who, whose desire was to be on television and wanted to be a professional TV presenter. He was interested in his subject yeah. and he had an original take on it, as mm. did Richard Hammond. That is actually the key to it. Mm. The little bit of magic came that in the three of us coming together, which was, I think, just something that happened, unless there are some supernatural forces at work, we ended up with a sort of a sort of clash of personalities in a way, but in a in a constructive sort of way that meant that we worked this thing that people keep talking about the chemistry yeah. we have I, it's possibly not chemistry and it's it's something we don't understand and it can't be replicated and it's also very delicate but i didn't think it would last this long i thought this is this is going to be a gig yeah you know it's a bit of a gig and we'll do it 
for a while and then they'll find some reason to replace us with someone else. But then the next thing you know, we're all really old and falling apart and we're still doing it. So there's Top Gear and now the Grand Tour. Mm. Um, these have seen you travel around the globe. Um, Botswana, lot, yeah. Bolivia, India, Vietnam, America, the North Pole. Yes. Um, what do you think is the strangest thing that you've eaten on the road? Ooh, I ate a sparrow. Oh. Uh, which I didn't find particularly tasty. What have they done with it? Just sort of, I, it was difficult to tell. I thought they might have just boiled it. Ugh. No. It definitely wasn't fried. It wasn't fried. And it wasn't roasted because it was too sort of insipid. So I think. Maybe it was boiled. Boiled sparrow. I've had some cockroaches and things. Was this with Jeremy and Richard? Yes. Boiled sparrow. Boiled sparrow. Cockroaches. I had I had some brains of things, but mm. I don't I actually don't mind offal. I quite like offal because I think most people don't eat it and if you are going to eat animals, you should eat the whole lot and make glue out of the bones and everything else. I um, think that that's a really noble thing to say I don't until think brains are it awful, begins though. to arrive at the table and then that's when people fall by the wayside. I think we all want to be respectful nose to tail eaters until you get a plate of like andouillette in a French yes. restaurant and, and then you're like actually or you no. look at it and you think that is a brain <laughs> because it looks like one. Yeah. Um, I'm not really squeamish about eating but I, I also don't I don't particularly like dare food or I don't feel like a better person because I've tried something a bit difficult or a, or a bit challenging. I don't feel the need to do that. You must have eaten with Jeremy and Richard thousands of times. Yes, I'm afraid so. When I interviewed Deborah Meaden, one of the things that always stuck with me from Dragon's Den, she said that they went out for dinner all the time and she said that Peter Jones doesn't share his food. What is it like eating with Jeremy Clarkson? Well, we definitely don't share our food. No. In fact, oh. I, don't, I don't agree with Jeremy about many things, which is one of the reasons I think it's been quite interesting and good fun to work with him. But because we are very different. Mm. But there, there are a few a few areas of common ground, very small ones. And one of them is we both quite like to order and have our own food. Yeah. We both bristle a bit if there's some somebody there who's organising us, a producer or whatever he says oh shall I order a bit of everything for everybody and we can all, and we all Jeremy and I are always the first going no I want those noodles and I want them to myself did, did, Although did you I, start I'm to not... get panicked is that because when you were little you had lots of brothers and sisters around the table it's a bit of that it's also a problem I've had with the women in my life mm-hmm. all of whom say I don't want a Chinese takeaway <laughs> but then steal a bit which is fine. I'm perfectly happy to share my food with anybody who wants it, but oh. don't pretend you don't want it. Or if you, you know, if but you do I want some, want, say so. I I'll... don't want it. What I want is just a little bit. You want to exert power and influence over us by stealing our food. That's it. it's it's psychological warfare, and it's wrong. It. I mean, how do you feel about if I ordered chips for the table? I want my own chips. Otherwise, I might not get enough. Do you know what I love the most about this conversation? How pained you look during this. You look really. This is I am this pained. is the this is the closest we've got to touching upon trauma. It's been going <laughs> on for years and years and bloody years, <laughs> and then before that with my sister. And just leave our chips alone. Speak out, fellas. You know you want to. It's important. <laughs>
Enough is enough, sisters. <laughs> In 2013, the Guinness World Records proclaimed that your show was the most widely watched factual television programme in the world. Yes, supposedly it was. Was there a moment, and I'm wondering if it was around now, that you realised that despite your catastrophic lack of ambition, you were really, 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 really incredibly famous? I've never felt incredibly famous and I still didn't have a great deal of ambition. I was just enjoying it. Mm. And that, that is the key to a happy working life. Don't feel you should do something that you're supposed to do or that history or family expectations says you should do or that even that your qualifications say you should do. Do the thing that you like, because if you like it, you will do it better and you will be happier doing it. But there must have been a point when you thought, I can't even go out the house. No, that's never been true. I've, really? Yeah. Do you not cause, like, an absolute roadblock if you go to B&Q? No. Come on. We're not Tom Cruise or film stars or the members of Led Zeppelin or ACDC or Supergrass or anything. We're just just some blokes who happen to be on the TV doing the thing that we like and that we find sort of amusing and a bit funny and a bit naughty. Do you think that at some level you're still just winging it until you get fired again? Yes, absolutely. Mm. I'm waiting to be found out. Mm. So are a lot of the people I work with. We do have an expression on some things we do. We say, oh, we've got away with it again. We won't, we won't accept that we're actually possibly quite good at it because that feels conceited. I'd rather think I've got away with it and then when I do get fired, it won't be quite so disappointing. James May, it has been a wild ride. <laughs> thank, <laughs> thank you. Thank you for comfort eating with me. No, thank you. It's been great. <laughs> This episode of Comfort Eating was produced by Jack Paramount. The series producer is Leia Green and the executive producer is Kathy Drysdale. Music and sound design is by Axel Cacoutier and this episode was mixed by Solomon King. If you like Comfort Eating, please leave us a review. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. And use the hashtag ComfortEatingPod to get in touch about the podcast or share your own comfort foods. This is The Guardian.